Nolora, smart ideas in a changing industry. Over the past five years, Nolora has worked with a variety of institutions to develop smarter ideas in the dynamic area of online education. These ideas and sophisticated analytical tools have guided institutions in identifying and developing new opportunities for growth. Together, we can leverage our expertise to increase the success of your students. Learn more at www.nolura.com. Have you ever stood in the front of a classroom, looked out on the room full of students distractedly checking email or Facebook or something, and thought, they're just not that into this? And it's a puzzle, right? Because back when you were at their desks, you remember being tuned in, more respectful of the professor at the podium. If this rings true, you're not alone, at least according to author Joshua Cooper Ramo. He thinks it's part of a bigger shift in attitudes toward college and toward authority figures in general. Ramo loves zooming out to get an aerial view of problems. Maybe it comes from his time as a competitive stunt pilot, an experience he wrote about in his first book. These days, his job is doing intellectual flyovers of the changing world we live in. Specifically, he advises companies on strategy as the co-CEO of Kissinger Associates and as a board member at Starbucks and at FedEx. In a new book, he offers a framework for understanding this hyper-networked world we've entered. It's called The Seventh Sense, Power, Fortune, and Survival in the Age of Networks. And in it, he argues that we're in a time of change as significant and disruptive as the Enlightenment and Scientific Revolution of 300 years ago. It's a time when old power centers are far less important than new digital gatekeepers like Facebook and Google, and when computer algorithms do things that even their designers can't predict. He says leaders today keep making the same mistake, assuming that what worked in the old system will win in this new networked era. New instincts are required, he says, and that's what he calls the seventh sense. So I wondered, what does all this mean for college leaders and for professors trying to prepare their students for the new world? Hello, and welcome to the Chronicle of Higher Education's Relearning Podcast. I'm Jeff Young. I sat down with Ramo this summer. It was a fast-paced discussion that looped around a bit, but it really made me think about the changing ways that the public views college. Here is some of our conversation. Your new book offers a broad framework to understand the big changes going on in the world today, like political, social, technological. And, you know, I, I think of it as like this classic, the classic film, The Graduate, where everyone was whispering like plastics. Right. In this, I feel like the word is networks. Yeah, yeah. All kinds of networks. Yeah. Um, you know, the computer kind, yeah, but terrorist networks, political, bank, political networks, banking networks. Um, but why do you think networks is this word people will be whispering at the garden party? Yeah, well, first of all, it's very funny. I, I've had a couple of things where I like talk about the book for with you know some very august figure in government or, or business, and after about five minutes, they'll say, you know, Joshua, that all sounds brilliant. What's a network? And so they're like, okay, let's go back to try to explain that. <laughs> so I think when we think of networks, we tend to think of the internet. But what we really mean by networks is any set of connected points. So. Mm-hmm. People who live in Washington, D.C. is a network. People attending University of Chicago is a network. People who speak Chinese is a network. People who right. trade in Bitcoin is a network. And what we know is that when you begin to connect things together in systems, they have certain dynamics and properties that can be understood that are quite different from, frankly, when they're only in hierarchical systems. And it's particularly true once you start to get lots of these systems. So 
you know, if you're, you know, listening to this podcast and thinking about whatever your job is, the number of groups, the number of whatever, I hate, I hate this word, but stakeholders that you have to interact with today for sure is more than it was 10 years ago. And it's going to be more in 10 years. And there's this explosion of complexity in the world. And that's because connectivity is so easy. It's so easy to form a new political party. It's so easy to form an online learning course. And it's only getting easier. And so what we mean by networks is this way in which power begins to distribute itself out of traditional, in some cases, more hierarchical systems and into these much more dynamic systems. You know, if there's a core message of my book that comes out from my traveling around talking to CEOs and generals and innovators and people running hedge funds, it is one thing. It is basically you are what you're connected to. Like it used to be we were what our resumes said we were. This is what you studied and this is what was on there. That was a very industrial conception of, of our lives. The reality is if you're hiring somebody today, what you really want to know is what are they connected to? Can they, what ideas can they bring? What networks can they connect to? How, in what, how robust a way are they connected to that? So we were talking earlier about our mutual friend Joe Ito, who is the head of the MIT Media Lab and doesn't have a college degree. Like 15 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. But the reality is, Joey, there's nobody in the world Joey can't send an email to in the technology world and get an almost instant response to. What matters about Joey is who he's connected to. And so I think that's one issue for education. All right, how are you looking at students and saying, what's really important is what these kids are connected to? And that ability to establish connections, break connections, enrich in connections, that turns to be out more important than walking them through the traditional you know, coursework. Now, some of that traditional coursework may be essential for making those connections, but the goal has got to be not that you've gone through an education system and you've studied you know, all the things that you're supposed to study, but rather that you've got a set of skills that allow you to make these connections. The other problem, which I think is the, you know, the one that probably is at the heart of this question, is what do the educational institutions themselves do? Because they're all engineered for this idea that there are these gatekeepers. They're going to decide who's in. If you're in, you get a Harvard education. If you're not in, you don't get a Harvard education. And the biggest problem with that actually turns out to be that all these kids who are getting a Harvard education, that may not be the education that you need. I mean, you know, the great line is it's not a surprise that some of the most valuable companies in our world have been started by people who dropped out of Harvard. You know, that maybe tells you something about... Dropped out, not Yeah, finished. exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and that sense, I think, that the traditional educational institutions are kind of impeding, in a way, the skills that you need, that they're moving too slow, is one that I think, for instance, presents a tremendous opportunity for them to re-engineer themselves. I want to talk very concretely about, you know, the moment where these students who maybe are living in this world that you yeah. describe with as networks, right. they get that maybe, and the professor who is coming from the old system, right? No yes. matter how old, you know, some professors, even ones that aren't that old, are very steeped in the old system because that's the way they came up. Absolutely. So um, it seems, so I, I, even this moment of, the, I go to classes and I kind of, the lecture it's not just that it's like the, the PowerPoint slide is not very good or something. It's not like a technical thing about the, yeah. the lecture. It's like the whole format kind of has this different implied structure or power, or balance. power balance than the students think it is. Yeah. And, and it seems like that's what you were saying. But I wanted to, you know, what, what is it about sitting in a class that kind of almost makes that a very specific challenge for a lot of professors? Well, there's two things. So first of all, one of the things we know is that great teaching is great teaching. And... Uh, I think it's actually one of the things that may be enduringly unalterable at the moment about how the human mind learns, which is that the Socratic method, the method of kind of getting people to figure it out in their own brains, mm-hmm. uh, is always the most powerful way to have people understand things. There's kind of two issues, um, I would say, that come to mind in that question. The first is one of the natures of the age that we're living in, a kind of core feature of it, is the collapse of the legitimacy of a lot of institutions that we once relied on. There's almost not a single institution you can think of that's more respected than it was 10 years ago. Not the in, media. In fact, really, it's less respected. Yeah, almost everything is less, right? I mean, not the media, not the, you know, John McCain had this famous line when Congress approval rating was at 3%, that like even the people who worked in Congress weren't getting the votes, the approval ratings from their families. 
and, and that's where we are. I mean, we are in the midst of a tremendous legitimacy collapse. And that is a symptom. Basically, any time you have a big revolutionary shift in power, like the Enlightenment, there was a period where the kings and the popes were completely legitimate. And then, like after a couple hundred years, they were less legitimate. So that kind of educational heuristic of this is the place that has a legitimacy, this professor is going to stand up here and talk to you, is as under as much challenge and threat as the legitimacy of the media or the press. And so it's got to be, or the media or the, or the Congress, it's got to be reconstructed for a new age. The first problem a professor has in talking is he's just sitting in front of a bunch of kids who don't trust any of the institutions in their lives to say nothing of the university. And that's one of the reasons we're seeing this incredible kind of fusion of, of uncertainty, unrest, instability among undergraduates on campuses today who are kind of trying to figure out where do they fit, how does the university fit into their lives. And it's not a surprise that among the things they've gone back in question is the, you know, Woodrow Wilson, you know, the guy who was the president of Princeton, is that really the appropriate name to have on your School of International Relations? So it's not a surprise that they're kind of getting at the heart of that. So that's issue number one is the legitimacy. The second problem the professor has is how do you actually get the ideas into this, the brains of these kids? Because we've moved from a world where, you know, the goal was really understanding, really deep, deep mastery of something to where people just want to have knowledge of how to get that. So one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of like, what are the networks fundamentally for? How to think about the information age. So the, the great gift of the industrial age was that it compressed, or puzzles sometimes too, was it compressed space. Because you had trains and then airplanes and the ability to move stuff around, it suddenly didn't matter whether things were 500 miles apart or 1,000 miles apart. They just began to, so the compression. So, so that was the big change yeah, in a previous what, era. What is known as the compression of space and time. The big change in this era is the compression of time itself. That what the networks are fundamentally for, and the reason that they just keep going faster and faster, even though we might wish they would slow down, is we all want to do more with less, and particularly want to do more with less time. And so the networks just get faster and faster, and they're compressing time. And one of the results of that is something in the book I call skill time compression, which is it used to take 10 years to learn how to do something, and now you can go online and get a, get a video. and Just-in-time yeah, education. Pretty much, yeah, exactly. So whether it is a trivial, you know, how to make a, a sauce for your turkey or how to do genetic engineering, there's something on there that can teach you to do that. And so the skill set that you need fundamentally is very different. The, the, I think the issue that ac- the academic world has to come to terms with is when that's the kind of knowledge heuristic, what are you really trying to educate these kids to do? And so there's a mismatch between what the professors are trying to get them to do, which is really understand it, and what the kids are trying to do, which is really know it. And it's in that distinction. And you can't fight history. They're, gonna, they're moving to a world of, of knowing, not understanding. And so I think the right answer to that actually is, and I talk about this in the book, is to begin to talk about the way in which connection changes the nature of the object and to focus on this one question for the students, which is that they are what they're connected to. And that the depth, that the, the bandwidth that they have between people and ideas turns out to be what's, what's valuable. But it's that skill of establishing a connection of self-education. It's the ultimate argument for a great liberal education. The last thing I would say about it is sort of a perplexing problem, hmm. which really gets at the heart of kind of what the modern educational university is for. And in fact, the history of the university. You can think of human history in the following way, that there was a long period of time in which we didn't know why anything happened. Why was it raining? Why did the sun come up every morning? And the great miracle of the scientific, the age of reason, the scientific revolution, was that it made the Aristotelian project, this notion that stuff could actually be explained, which Aristotle sure as hell couldn't do, but there was at some point he hoped people could explain it, Copernicus and Galileo, and then this, this, the Scottish Enlightenment, suddenly you could actually explain why. We knew why the sun came up. We knew why water froze. 
We're now entering an era where computational power and artificial intelligence are now becoming such a dominant fact of our lives that that may be starting to change. In the book, I talk a lot about AI and what the AI implications. In fact, one of the people in my AI chapter is Patty Mays, who you may have run into at MIT. I did. Yeah, and so Patty's great. And you know, the, the interesting thing about AI is we're getting to a moment now where AI systems are capable of understanding problems and answering questions in ways that we can't explain. They produce the right answers. But we don't know why. The computational systems produce these own answers. So it's almost like the age of reason was just sort of a blip that we had, you know, most of human history, we didn't understand why things happened. We had an enjoyable 400 years in which we could sort of understand how things were happening. And now the machines are going to be producing a set of answers that, you know, we'll just have to be like, yeah, I mean, all I know is this thing does math better than me. So if it says this is true, it's probably true. That totally changes the educational dynamic. A lot of the exciting things like, you know, MOOCs and Udacity and Coursera, these kind of interventions that do parallel their networks, right? right? And they've been a play to sort of replicate the Facebook and the and the yes. you know Uber effect within higher ed or within education, within education that matters. And yet, you know, the 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 sort of the the hope, the dream was that they right. were gonna make education more open, but it seems like it's really serving the haves and not doing much. In fact it might even be increasing, um, maybe as a side effect or accident, but increasing the divide. That's right. And so are we headed for that? Well, that's the issue that you've got to interrupt on all these systems. That's the, the danger of these systems. We all sat around. We all thought, geez, these are going to be incredibly democratizing. Yeah. What we know now is they do. They are accelerants. What's going on in the economy is a perfect example of this, which is we've dumped this unbelievably monetary amount of monetary stimulus into the economy. And the upshot of it has been not widespread middle class prosperity, mm-hmm. but an increase in the purchase of Gulfstream jets because the benefits of it just accumulate to a tiny percentage of people on the top. And so network systems left to their own devices do tend to create these asymmetric accumulations. And that's a, a, an important regulatory inequality, right? absolutely. And and that it, they're in fact engines for inequality. That particularly when harnessed to capitalism and some of these other things. So we recognize this now. And the question is, can we redesign? Because networks can be redesigned, right? Can we redesign them in such a way that we get their benefits? With, while also having some of the redistributive benefits that they should have. And that's as true for knowledge as it is for cash. You are who you're connected to. So what is a college education for in this new landscape? If Ram was right that we're moving into an era when it's easier to learn skills quickly, then how do you prepare students for their lives once they leave campus? I must confess, I wasn't exactly sure what the seventh sense is, and I don't think I have it yet, but it's worth reflecting on the times that we're living in and how difficult it is for colleges to adapt since they often place such a high value on tradition. This has been the Relearning Podcast. It's a part of the Chronicle of Higher Education's coverage of innovation. If you like this, Please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music or wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to give it a rating. You can sign up for our free newsletter and read our articles at chronicle.com relearning. Today's show was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. Our theme music was by Jason Cadell. We'll be back in two weeks with more conversations about the new learning landscape. <laughs>